Welcome to Epiphany Brooklyn's podcast. I am Brandon Watts, lead pastor here at Epiph. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our desire is to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. May God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in each week. Grace and peace. So what's up, Epiphany fam? My name is Jordan. I'm a dear friend of of Ty and Brandon. Um, I, I love those two. They are an incredible couple in New York City. My wife and I, we love them like crazy. One of the things about Brandon, Pastor Brandon, that I, I think sticks out in a sea of, of, of people and of pastors is a scripture in, in really Philippians 2, where Paul is talking about one of his co-laborers in the ministry, and he describes them as having a genuine interest in their souls. And when I think about you, Pastor B, Uh, You stand out to me as a brother who has genuine interest. So Epiphany fam, thank God for your pastor. Thank God for him so much. He is uh, a a true, true friend and also a a true pastor who cares for you, who loves you. And it's great to know him and to be in fellowship with him. So my name is Jordan and I'm a pastor from uh, in Harlem, Renaissance Church in Harlem. And it is my honor and my privilege to be here with you, Epiphany Brooklyn. I love y'all so much. Before we get into today's message, I want to say a brief prayer and we're going to get right into God's word together. So Heavenly Father, I pray that in this moment, in these moments, that you would meet us. Lord, we might be separated from each other, but we are together with you. So Lord, speak to us. Let your words penetrate our hearts and our, and our minds, and that would motivate us to worship and to action. And we ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So for the last couple of weeks, uh, I've been going down memory lane in my parents' house. I've discovered some things that I'm really excited about and some things that I'm not so excited about. I found some of the jeans that I had when your boy was like 15 years old and I had about these size 38 Jabot jeans. They were fire when I first had them, but now it's quite embarrassing how big they were. Uh, But I also discovered these wonderful trophies that I had languishing at my parents' house. And these were before they gave out participation trophies. So I I got these the old-fashioned way of having my dad yell at me from the stands to run faster. And I'm not trying to say that I am Derek Jeter. I'm not trying to say that. However, they don't pass out these little citrus color trophies to anybody. Your man was nice with it. Don't let, you know, don't let the short trophy fool you. Now, it would be ridiculous if you were to see me walking down the street at a, at a cafe or at a restaurant and you saw me lugging around these trophies trying to stunt. I am kind of doing that right now, but it would be ridiculous if I was trying to show off what I had earned in the sixth grade as a reason for you to be impressed with me. Now, fortunately, I do not carry around trophies trying to um, make people impressed with me, but there is something inside of me that, with God, collects all of my trophies, all of my accomplishments, and feels like God will value me more based on the pristine and beautiful nature of my, my trophy case. What's a trophy? A trophy could be defined as a physical, durable reminder of a specific achievement and serves as a recognition of value. Now, deep down in my life and in my heart, many times, if I'm being completely honest, the way that I approach God and the way that my relationship with God, that that way that I understand it, even though this is so against scripture so many times, is I just think that God will love me more based on how many trophies that I can collect. 
So now it's not about baseball or basketball or karate. Uh, now it's, I read my Bible for a half an hour today. So that's a trophy. Uh, I didn't argue with the troll on Twitter. Come on, that's definitely a, tro a trophy. I'll say this one like this, because I know we got kids watching. I didn't have relations with someone I wasn't supposed to be relationalizing with, right? And I'm preaching a sermon, come on. That has to be the big trophy. Now, deep down in my, in my heart, even though scripture speaks against this, deep down in my heart, there's still a piece of me that thinks that God is going to be impressed with me, that God is going to validate me based on the beautiful nature of my trophy case. Now, make no mistake about it, God does care what we do, right? But there is something really deadly about an approach to God which thinks that God will accept you based on how, how dope your, your trophy case is. Now, I've also felt the flip side of that. There have been times that I can look to my trophy case and I say, you know what, it's actually not that impressive. You know, I, I skipped on the Bible reading this morning, so I don't have this trophy. And I did get into the argument with the troll, so I don't have this trophy. And many times, a lot of times, I actually feel pretty guilty and unwanted by God because I don't have the collection of trophies that, that I want deep down inside. Now, some of you watching this right now, if we keep it all the way live, one of the biggest impediments to you and your relationship with God is that you know you have done things that are so bad that you will never amass the trophy case that you will be proud of. So you will always feel distant to God because on your own, you know you can't do it. And for some of you, you're there right now as you're watching this. You know what you have done. You know the things that you said you were gonna do that you didn't do. You know the things that you said you weren't gonna do that you did do. And as a result, you can't look to your trophy case with pride. But what if it was never about the trophy case? What if God had something much bigger and better than us collecting our trophies as a means of us having value? What if God wanted to give us value that could not be earned on ourselves, that could not be earned by ourselves or on our own? Now, even though it's absolutely ridiculous that we would even think that our trophy case and our accomplishments, the things we do for God can make us uh, valid in God's eyes, uh, we do it for a couple of reasons, even though it never leads to anywhere good. Uh, the first reason is, you know what? It's kind of just easier to measure, right? I can tell when I have read my Bible and done the things that I'm supposed to do. Uh, I can tell all of these things pretty, pretty easily, so in some ways, I prefer to rely on myself because I know when I've done it. The second reason that I do it, and this might resonate with you also, is it keeps you in the driver's seat of your own spiritual life. You don't have to trust nobody. You don't have to rely on anybody. It's all up to you. And if, I think if we were to keep it all the way live, a lot of us, deep down inside, we just prefer autonomy. We would prefer it to all be up to ourselves. One of the, the greatest sins in the Bible, if not the first sin in the Bible, occurred in the book of Genesis where Adam and Eve, they wanted to do things their way. So God said, yo, y'all can rock out. You can eat whatever you want in this entire garden. Just don't touch this one uh, tree over here. And Adam and Eve desired autonomy. They didn't want any limitations on what they would do. They wanted to be control, in control of their own spiritual lives. And underneath so many sins in this world right now is this autonomy. And one of the biggest desires that we have to amass a trophy case and build up our own accomplishments is deep down inside, 
We want that same autonomy. We want to be in control of our spiritual lives, but God forbid. And the third reason that a lot of us rely on ourselves um, is just the way that we understand God is just based on religion. And let me level with you, especially if you're new to faith. Christianity is not just another religion. It's not just another way that you can figure out the way to get to God. It is something completely different all together. And here's what religion puts you in a box to do. Religion has a couple of tenets. Number one, you should do this. You can pick any religion and they will all give you a set of things to do. Number two, you don't do it, right? Let's keep it live. You don't do it. You don't do those things. And number three, since you should do this and you don't do it, now you are in trouble with God. Now, a lot of us think that what it means to live, what it means to follow Jesus is religion. And we spend too much time thinking about what am I doing? Again, what we do matters. But what God has come to do is not just give us another roadmap of things to do that we don't do that we can feel guilty about not doing. What if it was never about the trophy case in the first place? Now, here's what that does to me. When my life is up to me, when I'm worried and concerned about my trophy case, what ends up happening is that I just never feel settled. And here's why. Pick a day, any day when you could not have done better that day. Pick a day when your trophy case is perfect. You can't, you can't think of it. Most of us, we might go 17 minutes max where we've just done things perfectly to the standard that God requires. None of us have done it. And that's the, that's the, that's the key to being able to walk away from this drug of religion that keeps us in the driver's seat but never seems to quite satisfy us or would never put us in the right standing with God. So I wanna turn our attention to a portion of scripture that gets at the heart of what God wants us to have. And what God wants us to have is not just us acquiring, polishing, and showing off our trophy case of achievements that we have done for him. Again, what we do matters, but why we do the things matter even more. So the scripture comes to us from a, a man named Paul, and Paul was a church planter, and he started churches all over the world. And Paul writes this letter to one of the churches that he helped start in Philippi. And as he's writing these letters, this letter would have been read to Christians just like me and you. And as you're sitting at home or wherever you're watching uh, today, they would have been hearing these words in the same way that I'm about to read them to you, which is a pretty cool thing. So Philippians 3, um, verses 1 through 10. And Paul is giving us a difference from us just having a trophy case to something that's much more settling, something that's much better and what God intends us to have in the first place. And here's in Philippians 3 and 1, it says, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write you to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, yo, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But people, Paul says, y'all, but everything that was a gain to me, 
everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes of my own from the law, not having my own righteousness, but rather one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal, Paul says, is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Now, Paul gives us uh, a new way to understand what gives us value, what makes us right in God's eyes. Theologians for centuries have called this justification, and today we're talking about justification by faith. Paul says there are two different ways that you can seek to be valid in God's eyes, to be able to stand in front of a holy and perfect God. One is based on your trophy case, and the other is based on faith that comes, faith through Christ and Christ alone. So he starts up the chapter first with a warning. And first, his warning is this. He says, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write, you, to write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. And here's what he says. Here's a warning. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, these are some very, very strong words when he says, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. And what is, what is Paul talking about here? So he's not talking about someone who is a cannibal or who's like Jeffrey Dahmer or committing any crimes. What Paul is talking about is a group of people. It's a Jewish uh, group of Christians that are insisting that in addition to placing your faith in Christ, you also need to be circumcised. So Paul gets all the way down and says, Yo, listen, I'm gonna keep it all the way live with y'all. These people, they are muters of the flesh and you need to watch out for them because they are dogs that will devour you. Now, why is Paul going so hard at this group of people for saying that? Because one of, if not the most dangerous thing that you can do is try to add something to your salvation. One of the most dangerous things that you can do is try to add something to the already finished, perfect work of Christ on the cross in order to justify yourself. Years ago, uh, my wife and I, we love to eat just like Pastor B and Ty. For our anniversary, we went to one of these restaurants that when the bill comes, you didn't even want to look at that joint. You just slide it. You just put your card on the table and just run away because uh, the bill was that high. But it was an anniversary, so we said, why not ball out a little bit? But one of the things that I was just blown away by at this restaurant was that they didn't put no salt on the table, no pepper, no ketchup, nothing came with the food. And why is that? Because a chef at this restaurant, when they put the food out, they knew it was perfect and that you can't add anything to it. And by trying to add something to it, you would actually take away from it. When it left that kitchen, it was perfect. Don't touch it, just enjoy it. When Jesus went to the cross, as he was stretched out and nailed to that cross, he, he said those words, it is finished. What I have given you is perfect. If you try to add anything to it, you will be taking away from it. One old theologian said it like this, the only thing that you have added to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. 
You and I can add nothing to it. And Paul gives this warning to this group of Christians to say, listen, don't try to add nothing to what Christ has done. What he has given is perfect. Accept it, cherish it, live in it, bathe in those truths that what God has given us through Christ, but don't you dare try to add anything to it. And the day that you and I look to our trophy cases and say, yes, God, I know you died on the cross for me, but I also read my Bible for 22 minutes and I read the book of Ruth and it was beautiful and it touched me and I wrote a little accompanying study journal to it. And yes, God, I know you died on the cross, but you know what? I prayed like for real, for I was praying so hard. I was crying and I really felt these prayers. And yes, God, I know you died on the cross, but yo, I also, yo, I haven't missed a service in like nine weeks. And I paid attention. I've been in the chat room, uh, lighting it up. Lord, you have to also add this. And here's what the warning is this. We cheapen the perfect nature of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross when we try to add our trophies to it. And what Paul is telling us is to watch out for those dogs. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh, the people who will try to cause you to add anything to what Christ has done. So first, he starts off with... A warning, and then he moves on to, to nail the point down. He says, For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit and boast in Christ Jesus. And here's what he says I don't put no confidence in the flesh, although he says, I have reasons for the confidence in the flesh. And here's what the point I love he says. He says, If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. If anybody thinks that you have a dope trophy case, I have a bigger trophy case. And here's what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day uh, of the nation of Israel, um, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. So Paul runs down his trophy case and saying, listen, if you think that you have reasons to trust in your trophy case, I have more. My awards are not some little third, third place tangerine joint. I have a mega trophy that's like six feet tall. That's the same size as me. And I'm telling you, I've been down this road and it doesn't take you anywhere. I've been down the road of having the most, the biggest and the most impressive tr- uh, uh, trophy case of accomplishments and things that I thought I was doing for God. And it never seemed to work. It does not justify you. And Paul continues... And and here's what he's getting at. All of us feel the need to look back on what we have done to give us confidence in the present or hope for the future. I want to say that again. All of us feel the need to look back on what we have done to give us confidence for the present that God accepts us, that God loves us, that God welcomes us, or, or hope for the future that God will take care of us. And Paul is telling us that we will not get it that way. So you put it all together. Paul has these great credentials. And what's he telling us? He's giving us all his trophies, all shined up, and they're impressive. And he says, this is what he says about them. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them to be as dung, so that I may gain Christ. Now, Paul says, everything that I've done, everything that I've amassed, all of my accomplishments, all of my achievements, they're worth nothing. They're absolutely worthless. But what God gives us is something much bigger and better. And his, uh, the righteousness that God gives us based on Christ 
will never go away. It will never perish. It can never spoil, as one author puts it in Ephesians. Now, here's why it's so crazy for you and I to base our relationship with God based on our accomplishments, our achievements, and our works, are also known as our performance. Number one, all of our accomplishments are fragile. Whatever you have done, no matter how good you think it is, it's really not that good. It's not something that will ever give you a settled state in life. Uh, there's a story about Whitney Houston on set of the movie The Bodyguard, and Kevin Costner told this story at Whitney Houston's funeral. Now, as the first day of the shoot of the movie The Bodyguard, Kevin Costner went looking for Whitney Houston, and everybody was saying, yeah, like, have you seen her? Where is she? And he's walking all over the building looking for her. And he found her in her dressing room, staring at the mirror, sad and depressed. And here's what she, she said. She was looking around, and she said, do you think people will like me? Do you think I'm good enough? Do you think, um, yeah, and she said, do you think I'm good enough over and over and over again? Now, check this out. If Whitney Houston, if her voice wasn't good enough, then what hope does any of us have to rely on our accomplishments or our achievements? When I say that our accomplishments are fragile, I'm saying that no matter how good we do, there's still this nagging sense in our brain that we could have done better or we could be better. In so many ways, when we look to our accomplishments to make us feel good, goodness seems to be so elusive. Now, for a lot of us in the spiritual sense, when I think about the work that I've done as a pastor, all of it, even though it's good work, hopefully, maybe not all of it's good work, even though most of it is good work, there's still like mixed motivations in everything I'm doing. And the best things that I'm doing, I, I still want people to, to notice how good I am and how good I'm doing. So even in the things that I think that I'm doing that are good, I still have mixed motivations. And maybe you know what it feels like to never really feel like you've just done good enough. And the point of it is, that's because our goodness, when we try to earn it on our own, it's fragile. It will always leave us wondering and questioning, am I good enough? Now, the second problem with us um, trying to measure up on our own is our accomplishments are, are temporary. Our accomplishments are, are temporary. So they're not just elusive in terms of not, us not being able to nail them down. They're also temporary. Now, Phil Jackson, during uh, the movie, the last, or the, the series of Last Dance, he made a comment about the second best basketball player in history, Michael Jordan. I'll let you guess who the first best is. Don't send me hate mail, or you can send it to Pastor B. Uh, but for the sake of right now, I'll say MJ is a goat. Um, but here's what he said about what drove Michael Jordan and what also drove Kobe Bryant to, to work as hard as they did. And he says this, you're only a success the moment you do a successful act. So these acts have to be repeated all the time. Now, I want you to hear this. If your relationship with God is based on how many trophies you can collect, if it's based on what you did this morning and how well you did, then you're only valuable when you're doing those things because you're only a success at the moment you're doing the successful act. If our righteousness depends on us, then it's temporary. It's not long-lived. It will only be um, valid for as long as we are doing those things. Now, what Jesus has come to do in our lives is not just to put us on the performance treadmill of making us always have to do things. What God has come to do is to make us children. Now, there's no child in the history of the world that has earned his or her birth. Decisions were made by parents to give birth to this child. 
And those decisions um, make that kid alive, even though he did, he or she did nothing to deserve it. And this is what Jesus says in scripture in John one, it says, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Here's the goal in all of this. The goal in all of this is that you and I would find a relationship with God that is not based on our accomplishments, but it's based on what God has given us in Christ, this gift to be his children. The apostle John, when he writes later in the, in the book of 1 John says, he exclaims, he gets all excited. He says, oh, see what great love the father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Now, for any of us who have been around children, I have two small kids. Here's the thing. Our kids have never earned anything. My kids right now are the light of my world. I love them so dearly and they have done nothing to deserve or earn my love. I wrote my kids both an email on the day that they were born. My wife and I got them Gmail addresses, so hopefully they'll have them one day. And on the night that they were born, I wrote them both an email, and my love for them was perfect, even though they had accomplished nothing. The good news of the gospel is not that you and I need to work in a massive trophy case, but rather that God has made us his children. Now, in all of this conversation, I do want to be really clear also on what I'm, I'm not saying Right? So I'm not saying that what we do doesn't matter. I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive for holiness, for godliness, to live in a life, a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying we shouldn't do this. Uh, the gospel of Christ, uh, God's grace in our life, it's not opposed to our effort, but it is opposed to our earning. I'm saying that again. God's grace in your life and in my life, he is not opposed to our effort, but he is opposed to us feeling like we have earned uh, our standing with him. And when we believe that our accomplishments and achievements give us right standing with God, that puts us in a position where we feel like we have earned our relationship with him. And God is opposed to us believing that. No child has ever earned their standing in their family with their parents. It was a gift that was given to them. Now, the third reason this is such a terrible idea. So number one, uh, our, our, our goodness is, is fragile. Number two, it's temporary. And number three, the reason it's always a bad idea is it just leads to comparison. And here's the thing about comparison. We never compare ourselves to the right people. So whenever we're trying to compare ourselves and earn God's favor based on our own works, we usually just compare ourselves to Keisha. And shout out to Keisha, whoever's watching that. I know there's like a bunch of you. Oh, we, we, we compare ourselves to Ramon, but that's not the standard. Keisha and Ramon are not the standard for God's holiness. God is the standard. God who is light and there is no darkness in him at all. And if we were to compare ourselves to God, we would never come out feeling like our righteousness was worth anything. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, more than a couple years ago now, uh, decades ago when I was playing basketball at Morgan State, shout out to my Morgan State Bear family, um, I thought that I was pretty good, right? I was playing against people on college campus, on my campus, and I was playing against my teammates. And I thought that I was... I thought that I was all right. I thought that I was pretty good. I'll never forget one year, it was actually the NBA lockout, and a bunch of NBA players who are from the Baltimore area came to school to stay in shape and to play against us on campus. And one year, I got to play against Muggsy Bogues. Now, Muggsy Bogues is one of the shortest players to ever play in the NBA, and what he lacks in height, he has made up for with aggression. 
And that little dude was the angriest, most aggressive player I ever played in my life. Some players get mad at you if you score on them. No, not Muggsy Bogues. Muggsy Bogues got mad if you dribbled on him. If you dribbled like twice, that dude pushed me around for like 30 minutes in a row. And he single-handedly demolished me in more ways than I have ever been demolished in my life. That dude was so strong. I tried to give him a five and, a, and I touched his back. His back felt like a turtle shell. I'm like, dude, how many push-ups are you doing, bro? Now, when I stopped comparing myself to my teammates and dudes on campus playing intramurals, and I compared myself to an actual pro, I got to see myself in a better light. And when I got to put myself to, to what the true standard of excellence was in terms of basketball, I saw how lacking I was, which is why I studied hard and I, <laughs> I, I studied hard and I hit the books and I went to law school instead of trying to have a career in the NBA because I knew I would never have one. Now, a lot of times in our life, we compare ourselves to other people, but that's not the standard. The standard is God. Now, take anything in your life. If you were to compare yourself to other people, you might come out favorably, but if you compare yourself to God, everything that you do is actually not that impressive. I was thinking about this this week as I was thinking about generosity, and I would like to think that I'm a generous person, and my wife and I, we give pretty generously, not just to our church, but also to other Christian organizations and ministries. And as I was thinking about this, I kept on thinking, man, like I'm actually a pretty generous dude. But if I compare my generosity to another person, I might feel that way. But if I compared my generosity to God and his generosity, it would come out so severely lacking. What is my generosity? My generosity, I give to organizations I believe in and I give to people that I want to give to. I don't give money to people who I don't feel deserve it. But what is God's generosity? Scripture tells us in Romans 5, 6 through 8, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though, for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we stopped sinning, after we proved that we would uh, appreciate the sacrifice, God gave his absolute best, the sinless, spotless son of God to us while we were still sinners. Now, if I compare Jordan's generosity to Jesus and God's generosity, it would come out severely lacking. Uh, if I looked at all of my accomplishments based on God, and if I change my comparison point, and if you change your comparison point from you to God, I think we might end up like Isaiah saying, all of my righteousness, all of my righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, as it says in Isaiah 40, uh, 64 and 6. So Paul says, don't, don't trust in yourselves. It's a terrible formula for trying to be justified or trying to be right in God's eyes. You'll never do it. They're fragile, they're temporary, and you're comparing yourselves to the wrong people. Instead, Paul says in verses 9 and 10, he says these things. The better formula is this, to be found in Christ, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. So Paul says this, there's two types of righteousness. There's one that's based on yourself. There's one that's based on your deeds and the law. And there's another righteousness, which is a right standing with God that is based on uh, that comes from God. It's a gift given to you from God, from faith. 
This is what theologians, again, have called justification by faith. Now, I got two examples for how justification works. One is the hood example, and the other one is a biblical example. Uh, the hood example is this. Growing up, I grew up in New Rochelle, and, uh, and our rivals were Mount Vernon. So if you went to Mount Vernon, it was a very good chance you would get jumped by the YGs or another, uh, gang, uh, another gang that was around the neighborhood. So me and my friends, we never chilled in the Vernon. When I went to school, my best friend was from Mount Vernon, and um, by the time you know, we would come back for Christmas break from college, we would all chill out together. So one night, I hit him up, and I said, yo, bro, like, what's good for the night? And he invited me to his block in Mount Vernon, a place that I would have never been welcomed before in my life. I pulled up, and I ain't gonna lie, I'm a little, I'm a little scared. So I kept the car running at first, and um, you know, I, I called him to tell him to come outside. He said, he said yo, park the car and come outside. That night at Mount Vernon was one of the best nights I've ever had in my life. I parked the car, I got out, and we chilled on his block for hours and hours, had a great time, laughs, jokes, good food. It was a beautiful, beautiful time. But what allowed me to chill there like it was all good? It wasn't me. It was based off of the work that my boy had put in, and his hood pass made me good. I was standing there. I had the ability to stand somewhere else where I would have been an enemy because of what the works that someone else had done. Scripture tells us that because of our sins, you and I deserve to be enemies with God. But because of the work that Christ has accomplished on the cross, you and I could stand in the presence of a holy God being accepted and welcomed in. That's what it means to be justified by faith, not based off of what you have done, but based on what God himself has done through Christ. Now, the theological example comes uh, from the book of 1 Samuel, actually the story of David and Goliath. Now, here's the dopest thing about scripture. The entire Bible is not about you and me. It's about Jesus. It's not about, it, the Bible is not the, the basic instructions before leaving earth. That's a terrible description of what the Bible is. The Bible is a story of God's redemption and God's story, what he has come to do in Christ, uh, you know, his creation, our fall, his redemption, and his restoration, it is God's story. Jesus flosses so hard in Luke 24 and 27, he says this, he's talking to some men on the road to Emmaus, and he says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And what scriptures are they talking about? The, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, as we would refer to that today. So when Jesus described himself, he says, yo, the whole Bible is about me. And when you take a look at the, at the scripture from, from that perspective, it tells stories in a much different way. Now, if you were to tell the story of David and Goliath, most of the way I heard it growing up was, you know what? There was this kid named David and there was this big enemy named, uh, named Goliath. And if you have faith and if you, you know, trust in God, then God will bring all your enemies down to the ground. So you should be brave and trust in God. Now, to a certain extent, yes, we should be brave and we should trust in God. But David and Goliath is not a story about what you and I need to do. David and Goliath is a story that points to Christ, that talks about justification by faith. And what do I mean by that? In the story of David and Goliath, you have an unlikely hero, a man named David, a boy named David who was a shepherd boy. And there was this war going on between the Philistines and the children of Israel. The terms of the war were this. Instead of having everybody fight and you know, lose thousands of lives, you send out one person and we'll send out one person. And whoever wins in this one-on-one -on -one battle wins the entire war. 
Everybody was scared and terrified. Nobody wanted to go against this giant of Goliath. Nobody thought that they could win, and they were right. David hears what's going on. He is incensed and he is angry. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? And David agrees to fight him. At first, they try to give him Saul, who was the king, Saul's armor, but David refused Saul's armor. David would not fight this battle in conventional ways. So instead, he took his own, uh, his own approach and he took a slingshot and some smooth stones. As the battle goes on, many of you have heard this story before. David uh, kills Goliath and cuts his head off. And because David beat Goliath, the entire Israeli army got to celebrate as if they themselves had won. All of them got to get the spoils of war, the victory, even though they were scared on the sidelines, uh, afraid, terrified, even though they had done nothing, they won. Their victory came not through them, but through David. Now this points to Uh, Christ and his victory on the cross. You and I can have right standing with God. We can have justification by faith, not based on what we have done, but because of what Christ has done and triumphing over death, hell, and sin on that cross. And this is how you and I can be right with God. We can receive this righteousness that comes from God through faith and placing our faith in God. Now, if you have never placed your faith in Christ, uh, what I want you to do is uh, mention that in the chat and someone will reach out to you or you can follow up uh, with the staff here at Epiphany uh, and someone will love to start a conversation with you about what it means for you to place your faith in Christ. Maybe your whole life you've been trusting in yourself. Maybe your whole life you've been trying to build a trophy case and today you're realizing it's never about the trophy case. I want to trust in Christ who, can, who is my true victor, who is the one who can actually give me a real righteousness that has substance. And for those of you who have already placed your faith in Christ, this week, I I want you to work to relax. And that sounds paradoxical. I want you to work in in, in what you're doing this week in, in your Bible reading to trust. In John 6, someone comes to Jesus and says, Master, what should we do to inherit the kingdom of life? And what should we do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Jesus looks at them and says, trust in the one in whom he sent. The work is for us, the work for us to do is to trust, to trust in God. Now, I know no other way to do this other than in spending time deliberately in scripture, allowing God's words to shape me, allowing God's words to direct me, and allowing God's words to redirect me in my life. And so many times in my life, I don't feel settled. I don't feel confident about my standing with God because I'm allowing all these other voices to come and speak to me and I'm not allowing God himself to shape me. So this week, I want us to make sure that we are spending the time to slow down enough to work to trust in the one that was sent for us and we can receive a righteousness that comes not from ourselves, but comes from God. Let me pray for us. So God, our Father, I pray that our imagination would be made alive, that we can see the depths and the lengths to which you have come in Christ, not to get us back, but to bring us back. And we can have deep confidence in that. And God, may your Holy Spirit awaken us and bring bring our mortal bodies to life to let us know that there is nothing in all of creation, neither heights nor depths, nothing that can ever be created that can separate us from your love. And Lord, may we look to your son, Jesus Christ, not just an example, but our savior, the one whom we can trust with our lives, with our souls, with our very being. May we look to him, our victor, our king. 
our glorious King Jesus, for our victory and to be our all. And may we rest in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.